a Highline podcast. This what? has been a rendition of Amazing Grace by the Kool-Aid Man. <laughs> I love I was that. not. Nope. That's not what I got. Oh, I, was... <laughs> I just started organically. I hopped on and I just like went, oh, yeah. That was. And then I just like kept going with it. And then I realized Stephen very much was on. That was so that, funny. You know what that really was, Josh? That was the sound of a virgin having sex for the first time. <laughs> There was this post on Reddit this week in one of the Christian subreddits, Amazing. and it's like hard to tell if it's a joke or not. But Uh-oh. this guy is complaining that his wife enjoys sex too much and, and cusses. That, like, he yeah, he doesn't know how to stop her from cussing because she like has a sailor's mouth in the bedroom because yeah. he does such a great job. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> All right. Uh let us not waste time. Shall we get into it, friends? Welcome to Ravel, a roundtable show about how faith gets complex with the vast amount of information at our fingertips. For some people, this complexity has caused the unraveling of their faith, and for other people, it's been liberating. Take us, for example. I'm Stephen. I'm Josh. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of the American Christian spectrum, and as some of our beliefs migrate, we still feel like our theology is in process. Theology always has fundamentally been, and will always be, an exploratory dialogue. That alone is proof that faith raveling doesn't have to be a crisis, even if it feels like it. We don't have all the answers, so we want to use this show to model what it can look like to genuinely sort through beliefs in real time. So share a drink with us as we pull on the thread of our own pressing questions. Thanks for listening. Well, happy freaking Christmas to all of you guys. Welcome. Happy freaking Christmas. We're creeping up on it, aren't we? We be. Merry Christmas. Are you going to keep the Kool-Aid man voice going? No. Oh, no. No. All right. This is a very serious question. Yeah. Do you celebrate happy Honda days or do you celebrate Merry Chrysler? Oh, are we allowed to say Toyotathon, or is that like sacrilegious at this point? Uh, no, I'll allow it. I I've been more of a fan of Toyotathon growing up. Like that's kind of like the tradition in which I was mm-hmm. raised. So I, I kind of want to honor that. My new favorite that has sparked up recently is Fiat Navidad. That's so funny. That's a really good one. I have not heard that. That's funny. Thank you. I actually came up with it. No way. I did. Yeah. Tweet that right now. Well, I don't. She can't because she doesn't tweet. Unfortunately. Tweet on my behalf. <laughs> I will happily steal it. Unfortunately for all of us. Yeah. Steal like an artist, as they say. Um, Man, welcome to the good vibes. I'm loving this evening. What are we all drinking tonight? Well, 
It's funny you should ask. I don't know if we would count this as one drink or one and a half drinks or two drinks because there could be an argument. Um, so currently I'm drinking, I've made like a mezcal-y t- cocktail. So it's like a double shot of mezcal, um, a good chunk of ginger simple syrup from Portland Syrups and some healthy amount of lime juice and then some glug, glug, glugs of pineapple juice. And it's very good, especially like for winter. Like it feels like a summery drink, but like it doesn't need to be warm out. Like it's just nice and refreshing. Oh, delightful. And then right before I made that drink, I made myself a double shot of gin with lime juice and salt and I just downed it. Now I'm not in the habit of doing this, of taking shots before the podcast. Oh boy. But one of the few times today that we are recording in the evening, I was like, why not? And then as soon as I jumped on the call, I started singing Amazing Grace like I was the Kool-Aid man. It was amazing. So you're welcome. I think it would be fun for us to do an experiment for our bonus episodes that we're going to be uh, regularly putting out next year. It's like drunk history, but drunk Ravel. And we can <gasps> only start an episode of Ravel after like three drinks, four drinks. <laughs> Very into that. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm all for it. I think we should do like a yes, yes, no drunk theology. Oh, that would be great. That would be fantastic. Are you kidding me? I'm so into this. I love that. I can't believe nobody's done it. We will. TM, TM. That's our idea now. Um, Emily, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a really big mug of hot chocolate. Um, but this one, so it's of course like the Swiss Miss, uh, but this one is a salted caramel, which is wonderful. But I went to the extreme and I went rummaging through my cupboard and y'all, you know, this is a church because they have bags, multiple bags of random marshmallows and they have one bag entirely dedicated to Lucky Charm marshmallows. So I put that in my hot chocolate and it's just making everything magically delicious. Wow. Truly. Yeah. I love the energy of that. Me too. Thank you. I have in my favorite frosty beer glass. This is from Good Earth Brewing. It's the Milk Truck Stout. Oh. Very good. Very, very heavy beer with some good like lactose to give it the like milk flavor, malty, chocolatey. It's really a beer that you can sink your teeth into and I'm really enjoying it. And who doesn't like a beer that you can sink your teeth into? Well, tonight is my choice, and I'm glad Josh is getting a little... I'm glad he pre-gamed. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I have been feeling rather inspired lately because of my recent new job editing for the Bible for Normal People, one one of my favorite podcasts ever. So I want to talk about the Bible tonight, and I specifically want to talk about the idea of biblical interpretation and how I think that people who like to lob the accusation that other people are committing eisegesis don't really know what they're talking about. And I think eisegesis is inevitable because we are humans who read and interpret language. Okay, that's a hot take. I feel like we should dive into that. That's interesting. Let's start right there. Because I sent you guys a screenshot of one of my tweets a while ago, and my thesis was essentially that there is more grounds in the study of hermeneutics, that is the way we read the Bible and interpret it, there are more grounds inside Christian hermeneutics to find a theology of Christian universalism than there is to find the Trinity in the first chapters of Genesis. And it just got me thinking about biblical interpretation, 
what people say we need to do is exegesis, that is reading what is meant to be read out of the text, whereas eisegesis is reading into the text your own biases and all those kind of things. And I just think it's impossible not to approach the Bible with some degree of your own biases. Josh, you go first. Great. So I first encountered the terms exegesis and eisegesis in ministry school. And like, obviously to anyone who's like been to seminary, um, you are years beyond me in terms of like understanding all the different hermeneutical arguments. But the way I understand it is basically what you're saying, Stephen, in the sense of like exegesis is usually focused on like a historical cultural understanding, which to my knowledge really started to arise in the popular sphere, maybe like circa the 90s, like after some of the major like academic projects um, that was like really trying to like give like a historical basis for Christianity and the Bible and therefore the meaning of the Bible, as opposed to eisegesis, which I think I agree with you, Stephen, that like it's really lobbed around a lot. Like I've done it before, like a long time ago, what feels like a long time ago when we did an episode about what there was like inspired by me preaching at a street preacher in Pike Place in Seattle because he's just an angry, angry man. I gave like a three minute tutorial over the megaphone on exegesis versus eisegesis. And I, I called this dude out for doing that because in my opinion, he was like taking things way too far. He was taking like a hyper literalist view of all of scripture and trying to thread it together in a way that in my opinion, it is not trying to do. However, I think I agree with you, Stephen, that like (laughs) on some level, even if there is quote unquote original meaning or author's intent, like regardless of what someone feels with like the inerrancy or inspiration of scripture, like I feel like that's almost an entirely different discussion to be quite honest. Um, although I'm not afraid to go there in this discussion, but like, I think like, even if you assume that there's original meaning that like we, I think that we are very, very removed and like at best have like guesses from like whatever information is available to us. Mm. There's this guy on TikTok who is a, uh, translation scholar. Um, so he knows a pretty decent amount about like hermeneutics and approaches and, and also like the archeological data that are there to like support what may or may not have happened in the texts in terms of like reality versus like narrative spin. And I really like his approach. His name is Dan McClellan. I think his handle is Dan M A K E L A N on most platforms. But I I really like his approach because he's, he's very data driven. Like he's definitely like on the scientific minded side of ancient texts as opposed to like the interpretive like theological side and i feel like that's where there's like a to me there's an interesting jump with biblical interpretation like i think that a lot of people myself included sometimes think that biblical interpretation is like very straightforward and like all you have to do is like look for quote unquote evidence whether that's in the bible or outside of the bible to justify your theological conclusion but like i think the part of me that like wants to agree with you with this all of all of my monologue to say i think the reason i agree with you is because I think that we often come to the text with our preconceived notions looking for reasons to back it up, mm-hmm. whether or not we're conscious of that. Right. Thank you. Yes. Because even insisting that you're reading 
right? The plain text reading, assuming some form of inerrancy, that immediately says a lot of things about what you think the text is doing. When I think there's pretty good evidence that it was, it's, it was never that and was never intended to be that. Yeah, even just the way we metaphorically open the Bible, I think is just, it's loaded with so much that I just think it's inevitable. And I think that the accusation of eisegesis is meaningless. So with that hot take, well, Emily. Okay. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear Emily's thoughts and then I have a question. Uh, for uh, you. Uh, uh, I want to hear Josh because I'm going to well, rip you guys apart. So <laughs> please do. Please do. Um, no, I want to hear what you have to say first because you had a question. Well, I guess my question is like, do you really think it's meaningless to accuse someone of like taking the Bible out of context? Because I think that we can appreciate. Is that what eisegesis means, though, to take it out of context? Because I'm, uh, I'm the way I understand it, it is. I'm specifically looking at modes of interpreting the Bible. For instance, I think the way that Christians, and I'll speak for me in particular, I think the way I was taught to read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. And I think that's eisegesis that we're all okay with. Because now it's like we're looking for the Scooby-Doo clues for Jesus Christ through Genesis 1 to Malachi 3. Like, I think that is a way of teaching eisegesis. And we don't have a problem with that. But if I were to say, well, yeah, let's read the Old Testament in the light of a conclusion that we can reach through Christ and his apostles being potential Christian universalism. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to read the Old Testament through that lens and people get mad at me. And I don't like that because I think we're doing that for so many different things. Mm. But I don't think that's like mm. quoting the Bible out of context. That's why I'm separating that out is like, I think eisegesis, quote unquote, being reading something into the text that might not be there is separate from just lifting Jeremiah 29 11 and saying, that's your blessing for the home because now God is giving you a future and a hope. Would you you not include like the proof texting of positions that you do not think the Bible is upholding as a part of that eisegesis kind of thing that you're pointing out? Yeah, I think so. Especially when it, I think can appear, uh, I want to use a metaphor of jewelry almost where like, I think there are robust theologies throughout the Bible that would form a pretty formidable crown to be placed on someone's head. And then the proof texting that can be held for other positions that I don't think the Bible is arguing for or that I don't agree with, if I'm being honest, those look like more like candy necklaces compared to a crown of gold. You know, it's like, (laughs) okay, sure. You have seven pieces of candy to hang on a string called homosexuality as a sin, but let's look at all the other things that come from sexual codes and marriage codes and all that kind of thing. And let's show how that is really not related. And also let's recognize the fact that someone eisegeted into their interpretation of the scripture in the 1940s, the word homosexual that we read in English today. So did I answer your question? I guess I think the- so. I have thoughts, but I've really, I really need to hear from Emily. We've right really now. been going off and Emily's about to own My our ass. ears are boiling <laughs> over with the need for her words inside of them. I know me too. <laughs> okay. So first off, you can't avoid having bias. Agree. Okay? From a you psychological can't. perspective, absolutely. 100%. The main thing to remember is 
when you are using that bias as your lens of focus for biblical interpretation, that is eisegesis. Explicitly like choosing to use that bias is what you're saying? Yes. Yes. As opposed to unconsciously doing it. Correct. Implicitly doing it. Correct. Well, what would be the uh, what would be another way? Well, I'd see, those are both the same uh, mechanism of reading, like reading through one's bias. So, like, what is that opposed? True, to? True, she's just saying the motivation is actually explicit in eisegesis, being like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming oh. to the text from this angle. So what? Yeah, which is kind of what I've been saying a lot of. Interesting <laughs> distinction. Okay. So, if we're having this in mind, okay, eisegesis is going to take meaning from biblical text that was never intended because when you're using eisegesis, you are not focusing on culture, history, context, language to support what the text is saying. So here's a question, okay? And you're going to tell me, is this question being framed through the lens of exegesis or eisegesis, okay? Ready? We're going to test your skills. Shoot. What does this biblical passage mean oh i want to say exegesis but i also think that there's problems with the framing of that question that doesn't that work just answer the question i'd say it probably lines up more with exegesis because it's not it's not a leading question correct it's a very qualitative question correct but verse mm. verses (laughs) what does this verse mean to me ah If you look at the question, what does this biblical passage mean? That's it. You are now having to read from the language in which historically it was written. You have to have an understanding of the history and the culture of when that particular passage, that particular phrase was written. You are now being vulnerable and relying on the knowledge that is coming from the text, not the knowledge that you are bringing to the text. Great. Does that help you a little bit, Josh? I think I'm tracking so far. Yeah. What? I think what you're saying lines up with Stephen, though. Would you say it does? Partially, yes. Okay. Stephen had said something early on. What was it that you said, Stephen? Like, everyone uses eisegesis? Is that basically what you were saying? Yeah, essentially. I just think I think it's inevitable. And that's where you're wrong. Go on. You go to a biblical scholar who has devoted their life to studying language, history, culture, because they want to know more and get true meaning from the text in which that text was written and understood by people of that time, they would basically say, well, that's an insult to everything that they put their knowledge towards. Because their whole job is to not use eisegesis. Their whole job, everything that they devote themselves to is to use exegesis. And they use four interpretations, four forms, I should say, of exegesis to even do that. And so I I, I think to to put a blanket over this and to say everyone uses eisegesis can be harmful for people who really are devoting to the study of exegesis. And it's those people oftentimes that are not lifted up. They are ignored by the masses. They're almost like the prophets of <laughs> of the Bible because they're doing everything in their power to understand the language, not from a modern standpoint, but from a historical standpoint and understand 
who the author was, if we even know who the author was, understanding what was happening in history, what makes sense of that, rather than a scholar being like, I want to prove this one point and I'm going to use my bias to frame every bit of research that I do. I don't care what the language says. I don't care what history says because I'm going to find this piece that fits my lens. Like, I don't know any biblical scholars that do that. Truly, I don't. No one who does it in good faith. So, the four senses of scripture or the four lenses in which good biblical scholars would use would be literal, a literal interpretation of the events of the story for historical purposes. No underlying meaning, just literally reading it as is. The second one would be typological, where they try to make connections between events from the Old Testament with the New Testament, trying to make allegorical connections with Christ's life in the stories of the Old Testament. That's not to say put Jesus in the text. And I think the question, Stephen, that you like in youth group, when your leaders would say to read Jesus, like, how is it that you phrased it? Read Jesus into the text or how would Jesus read the text? Read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And well, remember, Jesus was a Jew. Yeah, right. So if anything, you're just going to be reading the Old Testament as it is. You're going to be reading the Hebrew Bible as is because that's how Jesus would read it anyways. Um, (laughs) And Jesus proves that time and time again when he quotes Mm -hmm. the prophets, when he quotes passages from the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. The third one would be moral or tropological. And this is presenting the moral of the story. Again, historically based, not a modern interpretation of the moral of the story. It would, what was the moral Mm. of the story from a historical standpoint? Keeping in mind who the people were at that time, what the culture was, what was happening historically, so on and so forth. The last one would be anagological, which is looking towards the future of events in Christian history, trying to tear apart and understand concepts such as heaven, hell, judgment, prophecies. Um, But again, it's all from a historical lens and it's staying true to the text, not bringing personal, individual biases into interpretation. These are all important. And these are all skills that everyone can develop, but they have to be able to set themselves aside. And that's hard to do. And I, even I have problems with it. Like there's, so many times that I want to read from my own lens, but luckily went to seminary and I studied language. I studied Hebrew and Greek and Greek was, you know, my love and I loved it so much. And having that framework really does help understand even just a glimpse of what the Bible really means. And how can we then take appreciation from a historical standpoint rather than appreciating it for the value that we attribute to the bible because when i hear gospel the greek for good news like it's going to be found all throughout the text and it's not because i make it good it's because it already was good and it's because there's something that we can draw from it that's offered not because we give meaning to it and we interpret it the way we want but because there was something that was happening to a people historically, culturally, that was so significant that they shared it. They wrote it down. They passed it on orally, you know, time and time again. And we need to see the meaning from what it is and not what we want to give it. There you go. That's my wow, Josh. That's my that's my bit. 
Josh, we really earned that from Emily. We really did. That was amazing. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. I will take your rebuke and correction for for throwing around everyone when okay. I think some serious scholarship has gone into modes of avoiding that method of interpretation. I especially think like it, it just struck me how like scientific that process sounded. And I mean, literally by like the scientific process, like there's, mm-hmm. there's hypothesis, there's testing, there's, you know, there's peer review, all those kind of things, which I have an appreciation for. So I think coming out strong with the hot take saying everyone eisegetes, I'll take that correction humbly. Um, I think we were set up for failure a lot of the time. Like, I think that a lot of us were like taught to give that. I think you mentioned the like a moral, a modern moral reading or an analogous reading, but like with very untrained eyes. So like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us growing up were encouraged to read this ancient text that is somewhere between, depending on which part of it you're reading, somewhere between 4,000. No. No, what's no. what's Job dated to? Oh God! Do you know? Oh, is it top. is it six thousand BC that it's dated to? It's got to be close to that. Like some of the earlier. Well, either way, the Earth is only roughly six thousand years old, so prob- four thousand BC <laughs> max. Yeah. Okay. So like yeah, so like six thousand. <laughs> but like, I think that it's very. It's been a very Protestant outcome that. Like we were taught that we could read the Bible for ourselves, yeah, and that God would reveal the truth of it to us in in a very mm-hmm. like paradoxically subjective way that was like understood to be objective, right? I will add to that, and I think that is due in part largely by which version of the Bible. If you were given a Bible that had commentary in it, sure, or contained the apocrypha then you would be understanding the Bible a little bit more from an exegetical, not eisegetical standpoint, because Bibles that don't have commentaries or Bibles that are just straight up from Genesis to Revelation and don't have any cover letter regarding what each book of the Bible is about or who authored it, that sets people up to read it as it is and then to do nothing but interpret from their biases. I think something that reinforces all of that narrative for people, um, I'm reminded of, I don't remember exactly when I heard it, but I'm pretty sure that I heard someone from Bethel talk about this at a conference growing up. Um, but the the idea of what they're getting at was basically like wrong interpretation can still lead you to truth. Like you can like discover truth through like interpreting something wrong and that thing can still be true, even though you your interpretation was incorrect of like that passage. So like, what's an example? Um, we should be patient with each other is what you walked away from with uh, reading the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Well, like, sure. But like, if you're reading with like a historical cultural lens, that's not really like the point of the story <laughs> being told. Which So I think that's interesting. And I think that that happens a lot. And I think it reinforces what is actually a subjective view of scripture, but, but, and I think I side with Steven on this one. I don't think that that's, there's no sides. We're all on the same side here. There's no, we're all, I don't think that's bad. I think what that causes, if we allow it to is discourse. Like, I think that what that actually does is like 
helps bring discussions about the text that is normally scholarly and it brings it down to more of like a layperson level where mm-hmm. like we sh- I think we should be able to discuss what we think about passages which I think that Christianity tends to be like very siloed in like no this passage means this like whether mm-hmm. it's like right. from the pages of a bible version like in the cover letter or if it's from a pastor or if it's just from like your own study I think it's very easy to like not consider other people's readings versus like a Jewish view of scripture, which is very centered on the discourse and the disagreement. Mm-hmm. So I like agree with Stephen's point about eisegesis, I think, but I like, I don't think that that's necessarily negative. Does it cause harm in some communities? Absolutely. David Koresh caused like so much harm through his readings of scripture and like his like self-fulfilling interpretation of eschatology. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. in my opinion, if we were more open to like the discussion and disagreement and like not the following of one person's interpretation, it would help avoid situations like that. Mm. Absolutely. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, Don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Highline Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, The Whiskey Bench. Welcome to The Whiskey Bench, where we pair cocktails with conversation. Whether we're diving deep into a meaty subject like the history of fascism, or why monetary policy drives inflation, or just bringing you the highlights of a crazy news week. We aim to look past the simple answers and discuss the complexity of our wild world. So pull up a chair, pour yourself a drink, and join us on the Whiskey Bench. Listen, we know every church nowadays has its own espresso bar. But that didn't stop us. We've partnered with Good Food Award winner Revel Coffee to present a custom Highline blend. This is not your church's undertrained barista's coffee. No, no, no. It's reliable, delicious, brews well with every home method, and honestly, it just smells great. This isn't your stale, burnt to a crisp grocery store brand dark roast that tastes like it comes from the pits of hell. The Highline Blend is properly sourced, roasted to order, and shipped out fresh. Support us by ordering a bag at highline.network slash shop, or tap the link in the show notes.
The thing about interpretation and actually just reading the Bible in general, if you are reading for devotional purposes where you are trying to deepen and grow in a spiritual sense that you're not trying to make historical meaning. So like I'm thinking like just daily devotional books. So like Sarah Young, you know, classic author of like Jesus Calling and Jesus Listens, right? She has prayers for every day and they're based in scripture, but those devotionals are not going to be concerned with historical accuracy because there's meaning that's coming from the words that you find as comforting. So I'm thinking like Psalm 23, people love hearing it at funerals, but like that's not what it's all about. Like, Mm. right. So people can make meaning, but they're not taking that bias to interpret scripture. They're taking that meaning to be guided by scripture. So if I was, if I had someone come into my office and say they wanted to use Psalm 23 for a funeral, I'm not going to be like, well, that's not historically accurate. (laughs) We need to interpret it appropriately and use exegesis. I'm going to say, great. Love to. We'll do it because there's meaning that comes from that, but it's not being used for biblical interpretation. It's being used for devotional and for strengthening in faith, not for the purpose of biblical scholarship. And I think in that sense, eisegesis is totally fine because if you are making meaning in the sense of not trying to prove people wrong or that you're right, But there's a comfort in Jeremiah 29 or there's a comfort in Isaiah 41, then great. Otherwise, devotionals and (laughs) like things of that nature would be pointless because everyone would just be bashing each other over the head saying, that's not what the language says. That's not what like that's what biblical scholars would say is wrong. It's like, but 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 what I, I understand, I understand what scholars are doing. That work is important and Mm. we're not saying it's not important, but I just want to read like a prayer devotional book and I take comfort in reading Psalm 23. Is that wrong? Absolutely not. Eisegesis in that sense is totally fine. What do you guys think about authority of scripture? Because like the more I think about this, oh man, the more I think, (laughs) are you kidding me? I think that the main pinch points come not from like the disagreement of interpretation, but like the moral arguments that people give for like Mm -hmm. what you should or should not do. I think that's where it gets really tricky. Wesley would say Bible's number one. Uh, You look at the the good old quad, right? And and according to Wesley, it would not actually be a four-sided equal shape. It would actually be more of like a pyramid and scripture would definitely be on top and experience and reason and tradition would be the three bottom of the base of the pyramid. And again, Wesley would promote for having strong hermeneutical biblical exegesis, Mm. not to use it as a weapon, not to use it for personal gain and to manipulate the hearer or the listener of scripture, but to draw meaning from the text because the text is giving meaning itself. Um, Wesley was a huge Bible thumper, but in a good way. (laughs) So I think biblical authority when used in a life-giving way, in an appropriate way, absolutely. But if it's used for moral high ground and ridicule or abolishing people or people's values, absolutely not. That mm. You're just, you're tainting it at that point. Mm. You're taking away the meaning and making it 
awful and that's sad. In that view of authority, then, where do you think essentially it's almost like a layer back? Like, where does the right to that authority come from? Like, I, I think of elected officials in America, right? Like, they have the right to have authority because they were voted for, right? And they like won that election. In this case, I think when somebody argues for the, like, my gut check when Josh asked, I was like, do we really want to have an inerrancy inspired conversation right now? um because that i think is very often where i hear the authority being argued from like yeah well it's inerrant right it it is the very word of god delivered almost through like automatic writing Mm -hmm. through say the apostle paul you know which i was thinking earlier today like i almost wonder if that's why paul gets so much weight in Mm. a lot of evangelical circles is because well we have to acknowledge he pretty much dominates the New Testament just by volume. But I also wonder, because the mode of writing that is epistles sounds like it is so literally directed to you, the reader, like the individual who's reading Romans, it sounds like Paul and it feels like Paul is talking to you. So if you approach the scripture in an errant, in, in an inerrant way, that's too many in in, 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 in in that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but if you approach the scripture that way, then the eisegesis of it is, well, God is talking to me now instead of Paul is talking to the Ephesians. It's a delicate thing. That's, that, was, I think, that was a long loop around just the question of like, where does that authority come from? Like, I, you know, I, I respect Wesley's position, but was he approaching it in a way we would frame it as far as like, on the inspired inerrant spectrum. I'm not sure. Two thoughts. I think that in the discussions of inerrancy and inspiration, um, which I have my own opinions about, I think that it often doesn't get talked about on the like sociological level. (laughs) And I think that like, no matter where somebody falls on that discussion, we should admit, because I, I don't see any way around this. We should admit that the Bible has authority to Christians because it is the common text of Christians. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I admit that this is a tautology, but like, (laughs) like this is the social reality of Christianity. So like uh, we were talking about like a couple episodes ago, like I like it when people identify themselves as a Christian because I feel like I can hold them. Like, I feel like there's something to like compare them to and like discourse with. And I, I think the same is true of the Bible. Like if someone's like, yeah, the Bible's the authoritative word of God. I, it's like almost easier to proof text to them and be like, Here's where I think you're wrong according to your own measurement your own measurements mm-hmm. versus like you could have a similar conversation with someone who is not holding to like a literalist inerrant view but I think that like you can still have a a similar conversation with someone who is not necessarily like a literalist fundamentalist but is trying to still center themselves around the Bible in terms of like tradition and history and cultural context and you can still approach them in like the in quote unquote the authority of the Bible as in it's their center point so even though they're like viewing it with a different like style and authority and interpretation, I think that the social aspect of the Bible being like the central authority is underrated. Mm-hmm. So almost it's the same as what I was talking about, like from a elected official type view. It's like it has authority because we all kind of have agreed that it does. Yeah. Even <laughs> if we disagree about like what the Bible is telling us to do. Right. Unfortunately, I would say a very good parallel is the Constitution for the United States, 
We may disagree. The judges may disagree. Congress people may disagree over centuries. And maybe like the lawmakers, maybe like the scholars are the lawmakers in a modern sense, sort of. Mm-hmm. In some ways, okay, so I've been thinking about this a little bit over the course of our conversation. In some ways, I think that even as like our opinions change about the Bible, I think that like we should be open to hmm, what's the, what's the way I want to put this. This is going to sound so relativist, but I think we should be open to things changing because like that is the history of Christianity. Like that's why the ending of Mark is not included in some translations because we later discovered it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. So the scholars want to stay true to the original text. And that means cutting some stuff out sometimes or Mm. like updating translations. And like, I think that even if I think like the most inerrantist person should be like hundred percent on board with changing their views about the Bible to stay true to the text, quote unquote. Like if they actually feel that way, like we should, they should be like the first ones on that ship. Unless it's the King James, then that is literally perfect. <laughs> KJV only. You heard it here, folks. Um, Emily, what do you think about the idea in the Old Testament? I've heard it called a Christophany. Oh, uh huh, uh huh. And Keep do going. you think that is eisegesis? And if it is, do you think that's okay still? Oh. What do you what do you think about that? Because like I almost feel like you know, I don't want to lob like just straight up cultural appropriation at Christians who have developed the idea of a Christophany, but then my first question is like, well, how do Jewish people still read that story? Cuz I don't think they're going to read that that all the same way. Well, I I have to think on that for a minute. Along those lines, do you think that Paul was the first person to like use Jesus as an interpretive lens for the Old Testament, and that's why it's become so prominent today? Oh yes, that that's an easy one. <laughs> um, I mean, could I could I counter a little bit and say I actually think Jesus was the first person to do that? Okay, like sure. His his strategic readings of the scrolls of Isaiah on the Sabbath, and then omitting portions. I feel like that was intentional, right? Like that's a bit of like reinterpreting in that instance. I mean, there are also moments where he, I think he just calls on prophecy and then looking around at the apostles, he's like, it me. Hi, that's me. You, you're reminding me of another form that I think happens a lot, even when people try to center around Jesus. Would either of you say that it is a form of eisegesis when we like apply a modern framework or label to the text or like specifically a character in the text like Jesus. For example, and I think this could be lots of things, but for example, saying Jesus was a revolutionary or a socialist or that the early church uh, practiced communism or ooh. like something like that. I, I think there's lots of different examples. Those are just the first ones that came to mind. I think that's possible. That's that is especially what makes me feel like and I will distinguish normal people from the scholars who are trained to do the opposite. But that's why I feel like most everyone does eisegesis in a way. Mm. And that it is inevitable for that reason. I just feel like there are so many examples. Like, how are we all reading the same passages in Matthew 5 through 7 and coming to completely different conclusions that we could describe as conservative versus liberal versus, you know, all this stuff in between? If it's not that we're approaching it from different points. What do you think, Emily? Do you think it counts as a form of eisegesis? 
I think, again, if it is for the sole purpose of confirming a bias. A bias as in like confirming like even a viewpoint in the modern day? I mean... Let's say like not theological in nature, like politics or mo- some modern morality issue, like social media or I don't know. I think it is a form of eisegesis. I think it is too. I can admit that I don't think that it's the worst. No. Like kind of going back to the like, you can interpret something wrong and like come away with like truth in a way. Mm -hmm. But I think that it would be more honest for someone to say like reading the narrative of Jesus leads me to like adopt the tenets of socialism. Like I think that that framework is different than like trying to like superimpose a modern framework onto the text. But there's also disagreement about that, right? Like that's like scholarship, you know? (laughs) So Stephen, to answer your question, I think uh, it can be eisegetical um, if you are trying to use it as a means of converting individuals. Or oh, great nuance! Sup- or superimposing Christianity as the dominant religion, and that all other religions are false. Especially that that would just be devastating. Uh, but if we were as Christians to like be true to the text, then we need to remember Jesus was a Jew, and we need to be mindful and respect our Jewish brothers and sisters and. We can have biblical scholarship that is similar and different from one another, but that does not give us the right to superimpose Jesus the Messiah into their world and into their religion and into how they interpret scripture. Because Christian, Jewish, agnostic, atheist, if you're going to be a biblical scholar, your goal is to focus strictly on the historical meaning, language, culture, tradition of the text, not the modern imposed bias that we bring to the table. Yeah. So you can read Jesus being present. You know, a classic one is Melchizedek. Uh, yeah. You, You can read that and you could like tip your hat to that and say like this this could have been jesus in another form or whatever the case may be but you're not using that to then say see my jewish friends you're wrong like you had jesus the whole time um that's Mm. just wrong that's so wrong i really appreciate that nuance i like the way you framed that thank you i'm sorry to bring up yet another example so close to the finish line here um (laughs) No, you're not. Don't lie. But I want to return to it because let alone the first chapters of Genesis, do you think that the theology of the Trinity is eisegetical in nature? Um, (laughs) I'm going to take this one if you don't mind, Emily. Go right ahead. (laughs) I'm going to say no, based off of our previous conversation. And I can't believe I'm saying this because I don't think the Trinity makes fucking sense. And I think that that's the point. But... (laughs) Like, I don't think that the argument for the Godhead being three in one in unity and mystery and essence and like all that shit, I don't think that that has like political gain. Have people use that after the fact? Sure. But like, I, I don't think that the interpretation is like, I, I, I don't see a framework in which like someone was motivated to like 
argue for that for their own like to cause i don't know like like in i guess in the sense of like a prosperity preacher is like you know giving certain teachings on the finances and like they obviously benefit from that like such an obvious example i don't see where someone would benefit from the idea of the trinity josh i i could kiss you right now <laughs> oh thank you wait but did i greet each other with a holy kiss did, amen i'm uh, apologies if i missed a portion of today's episode but did i miss something like <laughs> i didn't i don't i don't i don't necessarily catch the line of like there's no incentive to do that. Therefore it's not ICG. All I'm saying is it seems like an extra biblical idea that has become something we are able to get out of it because of someone's reading into it and teaching us to read into it. Okay. Those individuals were there. His like, I don't want to say they were there historically, but they have a history. They have a historical basis that we now as modern readers and interpreters are kind of missing out on. Okay. They were doing biblical scholarship and exegetical work in that time. And that's going to be different than us because one, we're modern uh, for our day and age. And we are reading and understanding this concept that was formed much later on than they were. And you got to remember who these people were that were trying to make sense of this. It's they weren't bringing their own personal bias into this. They were trying to make they were trying to make sense of what was being written and shared historically. And when you have words like spirit as being a part of God and then you have this idea of now God taking flesh, how are you going to make sense of that when you're reading that from a historical lens, the Trinity? Hmm. Rather than Here's what I think, and I'm going to make everyone else believe it, and we're now going to vote on it. It was no, like they they were interpreting scripture, right? Like the la- last episode, you know, you were speaking of the Hebrew word for spirit. They're going to read that word. And they're going to be like, "What is this? Like, why yeah. does this make sense?" You know. So, does that set it in a more? Oh boy, how am I phrasing this? Is modalism then equally valid? As opposed to the Trinity, because I feel like Mm. people doing legitimate biblical scholarship have come to a conclusion of modalism instead of Trinity. I think it's hard and we might, I think we should have an episode about the Trinity. (laughs) I agree. Um, But I think what's difficult is I see what you're getting at, Stephen, with like these, this concept specifically is not like inherently, not inherently, inherently like lined out in the text like it's it's not something that is clear like i think even in the discussion of like prescriptive versus descriptive in the text like it's not even described hardly it's like all we get all of these like bits and pieces of the character and the nature of god over the course of like the rise of the jewish religion and then like into early christianity and then like the early christians are like struggle like they are in my opinion like some of the first people whose faith was probably like unraveling in regards to Christianity and like trying to like make sense of, okay, well like how does this work then? Because like we have all of these bits and pieces. And so I like, I hear what you're saying with like, it feels extra biblical, but I think that, uh, how do I want to say this without like us dovetailing into like another hour of discussion? (laughs) Um, 
I don't think that it's necessarily biased to walk away from this ancient text that we have with a conclusion that is not necessarily lined out in the text. Going back to my example a little bit ago about like modern political form, I don't think that it's like wrong or inconsistent for someone to like walk away from the story of Jesus in the early church and say, I am inspired to be a socialist. And I think that it's maybe more correct than to be subjective than it is to say, like, I think Jesus was socialist. And maybe in a similar light for the Trinity, I don't think it's wrong or necessarily biased for someone to, or like for a group of people to collectively walk away from the text and agree that we are all seeing this thing in the text. Now, I mean, we could have a whole discussion about like the uh, the early condemnation of heresies and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that your mm-hmm. your question about like modalism is really interesting too. I'm not sure. I don't not sure how to answer that. Might have to just table it then. <laughs> yeah, we might have to table that one. Yeah, but that's interesting. I really appreciate you guys diving into this one tonight. I feel like this is not the first, but. Uh, one of the few episodes where I'm coming away from the conversation, probably honestly more confused than I was at the beginning. Like there's a lot here and I, I feel like I was ready to bring it to Ravel in a sense of like, I feel like I'm coming to a conclusion. I think I can defend it, but um, <laughs> I, I think I have some misconceptions about what eisegesis is apparently, but I really appreciate you guys working through it. I've had a ton of fun tonight. Yeah, same here. I mean, to that point, I think that we I think a lot of us growing up, I'm saying like we like generally, I think that we were discouraged from like appreciating the nuance and complexity and I think that there was kind of this undertone. I don't think I ever got this explicitly, but I think that there was this undertone sometimes of like Satan wants to cause confusion. Like he wants you to be confused oh, about yeah, what God wants I've for you. Yeah, I've heard that. You know? And so I think that there was like this implicit bias in American Christianity in our generation to like hyper simplify. What is the text saying? Do your soap in your quiet time. What's the application? Like trying to make it like as easy as possible for someone to like walk away with a some sort of conclusion or prescription. And uh, I don't know. I'm I increasingly love these conversations where I'm like I I become so much more aware of like. Oh, like I know that I'm more educated than a lot of people on the Bible. And wow, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, I wanted to throw the invite out there to anyone listening. If you have any thoughts to contribute that you would like to do so in a form of an audio review or get us thinking about this from another angle, you can do so. You can kick off an episode for us if you leave us a like a voice memo submission to our email address or call our hotline number 601-55-RAVEL, which is 601-557-2835. I think that would be a lot of fun if someone else has something to say on this that can get us kicked off from another angle. Because maybe that's the point is maybe what I'm trying to do is like say, no, no, I just think maybe I have a misunderstanding of what eisegesis is. I really appreciate the emphasis on like the explicitly putting a bias on top of in order to prove a point, Emily. And maybe that's where I was getting confused, but this is why I'm here. 
Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, um, circa January, we do already have a guest submission that um, I think will work very well as a semi-sequel to this episode. Oh, amazing. January 2023. Oh, reminder, we should say as we uh, exit this episode, we intentionally do not release an episode the last Wednesday of every month. This is typically the Wednesday. This is always the Wednesday, in fact. You mean every year? What did I say? Every, Every month. month. No, it's just December. <laughs> the last Wednesday of Thank December. You. I meant year. Yes, we take the last Wednesday off of every year, which is the last month of December, the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, this is to give us a just a bit of a break. I guess, I don't know if we're calling them seasons or what, but it gives us a little bit of a break, especially because Pastor Emily over here is pastoring through Christmas, and that is a big deal that takes a lot of energy. Is a busy time to be a pastor. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Full circle. Emily, do you have uh, any authoritative word to give us as we exit out of here that we could not possibly misinterpret at all? No. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) But I will. Well, maybe this is. I will. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, bye. Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.